You are listening to the Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beej, the advancing journeyman developer. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Complete Developer Podcast. Hey, Will, grab me a beer. Get your own beer. Pseudo grab me a beer. Sure, man. Console apps, terminal applications, or command line applications are often seen as simple, but really aren't in most cases. Not only are they broadly used in every major operating system, whether you can see them or not, but they also tend to be constructed to be usable by other applications. In fact, many apps call out to console applications under the hood for specific functions. In this episode, we're going to talk a little more about how this sort of stuff works. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well, I'm uh, I'm on the second week of my recovery from my hernia surgery. I'm doing a lot better than last week, so I'll actually be able to get through an episode without too much pain, hopefully this time. Uh, Good. Sorry about last week. That was that was pretty rough. I thought I was going to be okay, and I just wasn't. Yeah, um, time-wise, I don't know that that is actually going to come out the immediate week before this one, so... Uh, yeah, it won't be. It'll be like two weeks before. Yeah. So. Um, cause I figured that out yesterday, but <laughs> even so, <laughs> like, yeah, we can only really talk about it in terms of when we recorded it. Cause otherwise it just gets like, you have to open Google calendar and try to figure out, okay, which time dilation am I on here? <laughs> so anyway, like I'm able to walk around, I'm able to drive to work and all that kind of stuff. I wasn't able to do that, you know, last Monday. Um, I basically sat in bed all day and worked. Um, so I'm, I'm doing better now and trying to get back in the swing of things, you know, cut through a lot of work that's, you know, piled up while I was gone, um, both for the surgery and for dev space. Yeah. Before that, um, I've got some speaking coming up as well. And then hopefully after, I think after next week, I'm actually coasting for the rest of the year, pretty much. Yeah. This, uh, this week was the start of that for me. I'm trying to catch back up. We tried to get ahead. Yeah. And it's a good thing we did that because otherwise we would have fallen behind instead of just falling to, you know, editing the episode that comes out that week. So how about you? Well, I have been fighting databases today. Well, more like DBAs with too much on their plate. It's the end of the year invoicing and all that sort of stuff. So they're really overloaded right now, right before the holidays. Doesn't make it any easier on us API developers because we end up waiting on things to get created as they're going in and doing, you know, higher priority things. Yeah. So now on a, a nicer note, the weirdest thing happened this past weekend. I went down to visit my mom and on the way down there, the service engine light came on on my car. And so I was kind of stressed out. I got down there. We hung out for a bit. I told her what was going on. She's like, well, why don't we run over to AutoZone and you have them take a look at it. So she rides over there with me. We go and it turned out to be bad gas. I got in a gas station right before driving down there. You commonly have problems with bad gas. <laughs> <laughs> As your former college roommate, I can tell you that that's the first thing I would have suspected. So after that, finding that out, we're like, all right, well, this is thankfully not a thousands of dollar fix, but just, you know, $5 for the gas stuff to pour in there and then have to fill up on premium. I, I told my mom, I'm like, Man, I just 
I could go for a beer. And she's like, well, I could go for a glass of wine. So we head over to to a bar just to grab a drink and hang out. Uh, we walked in. We walked up to the bar. This drunk guy was sitting on the corner of the bar and kind of starts a conversation with my mom and ends up buying our first round of drinks. Well, there you go. <laughs> and after, after he did this, my mom looks at me and she's like, does this happen often? <laughs> like, around you, it yeah, does. Around me, it does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's the most random thing ever. Uh, we have lots of stories we could tell, I guess, on here, but we shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. So. Speaking of a few drinks, if console apps make you want to drink, then you might find what I have for IOTs rather interesting. So let's go ahead and roll the music. Even if console apps don't make you want to drink, the Windows IoT Core Breathalyzer is still an interesting project. It's an internet-connected breathalyzer that writes to the cloud to record trends and predict when you might be at risk for having had too much to drive home. It uses an analog sensor with an LCD to prompt users with instructions, and the creator of the project points out that this is for novelty purposes, it's not for scientific or legal ones. Still, it's kind of a neat idea. It reminds me of the breathalyzers I've seen at some of the bars around town. But hmm. this one actually uploads your data. Interesting. Oh. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Who's talking to us this week? Well, we grabbed an email from Alex saying uh, Russia created a cryptocurrency to replace Bitcoin. It's called Sibcoin, and it's Siberian Sh- Shervinets. that I, I think you pronounced that right. I yeah, don't I don't speak either. Russian, so. <laughs> uh, interesting. Alex, thanks a lot for that. When I looked this up uh, today, the exchange rate was about $1.30 for one Sibcoin. Yeah, and Bitcoin is like, what, 5K or something yeah. now? It's ridiculous where, it, where it's well, gotten to. But we'll have to follow these. Uh, send us an email with your contact information because we've got a complete developer water bottle just for you. Guys, if you'd like your very own complete developer water bottle, leave us a review on iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all our episodes to Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Google+. We're also on Instagram, Path, and Tumblr. And if you want to catch us live, we post on Facebook Live, Twitter Live, and Periscope every Monday night before we record. So if you started out in software development back in the day, um, you know, basically the 90s or really even, you know, well into the or, you know 2000s, um, you probably got some early exposure to console applications. Console applications are often the simplest place to start when learning to develop software for desktop and server environments, which is why you get thrown into those early on it doesn't take as much to get them set up and you know that's that's why they start you out with that stuff and generally speaking what you do with these is you learn just enough to get the basics of the language down and then they move you on to you know graphical user interfaces because that's what everybody wants but the console app is actually quite usable for its own purposes if you understand how they work Um, so we thought we would kind of go into this because a lot of developers don't seem to have as much of a grasp of them maybe as they should well, I think a lot of developers now are getting pushed more towards web development. Yeah, that has less to do with the console. Well, there's that, and it was you know visual tools did it before 
yeah. the web too because you know you, you drag and drop on a visual basic form you, you, know, you do hello world in visual basic back in the day you <sighs> built a form that. and you put a button and you do a yeah. message box right and like that that was the canonical example and you never do anything on the console mm-hmm. um, but like your c programs and your assembler programs and you know those kind of things early on you did write to the console well i, I remember q basic pascal yep. even c plus plus doing yep. it yep so what is a console or terminal application? Well, um, we grabbed a def- definition off of Wikipedia, which was um, a bit massive. Um, it was a gigantic run-on sentence. Yeah. Thanks, Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> a console application uh, is a computer program designed to be used by way of a text-only computer interface, such as a text terminal, the command line interface of some operating systems, or the text-based interface included with most graphical user interface operating systems. You know, this is stuff like the Win32 console in Windows, the terminal in Mac OS X, uh, Xterm or Bash in in, in Linux. Um, so that that's basically what it's for. The user typically interacts with the console application using only a keyboard and display screen, as opposed to the graphical interfaces that normally require the use of a mouse or other type of pointing device like trackpad and stuff like that. However, if you like to torture yourself like Will, you will learn to use a graphical interface without the mouse. Yeah. And actually it does have its benefits. Yeah, it makes it faster. Mm-hmm. So to start off, we've got some terms that you need to understand before we really delve into the meat of console applications. We'll start with the application itself. Um, that's the first thing you specify on the command line. You know, is the is the thing that you're actually going to run. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> you'd be surprised how many people don't know that. You know, they, yeah. they're like, hey, you type magic words into the black box with white letters. Like, what you're doing is you're typing in, hey, here's the program I want to invoke. Right. Right. What can be executed is kind of different on different systems. Uh, Windows tends to do this by file extensions, so you get stuff like uh, you know .exe, .bat, .cmd, and .ps1. I've I've never heard anyone call it exe. I just heard people exe. Yeah, um, it's it's like HTML and HTML. <laughs> I guess <laughs> I don't know. I don't know really where to go with that. It's everybody's got their own pronunciation of it. <laughs> just had to pick up. Yeah, yeah, yeah and that, that's kind of the way Windows does it. Uh, Unix-based systems tend to do this by actually setting a flag on the file to indicate that it can be executed. I think this is probably a better method. Although I get why Windows does it by extension because then they can do special icons and do do things different with the file system that right. way. Um, you know, like if you think like the way the really old file systems worked that. I get it, um, but I like how on Linux, if I download a script, I still can't run it until I actually set it to be executable. That's kind of nice, mm-hmm. just in terms of you know not shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I've written a few batch scripts for Windows uh, to you know run things like so I don't have to type in multiple things. Yep, because I'm just lazy like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I mean, that's like that's the way our builds work at work right now. Yeah, <laughs> I have like a build and deployment script that's a batch file. We double click. <laughs> it's checked into source control and nobody touches it. You know, we're working on the CI server, but we're not there yet, so we just kind of rigged something. Yeah, and by we, I mean me. So that's the other reason people don't want to touch the batch file is nobody wants to know just how bad it is. <laughs> After the application name come the arguments that are getting passed in. Um, these are you know like parameters going into a function essentially. Um, it's that same kind of that same kind of concept. The simplest case, these arguments can be simple switches to turn functionality on and off. You know you'll see 
you know, various ones depending on what, what you're doing. They can also get a little bit more complex and be several levels deep. So you can have it set up where there's a tree of options um, that you're calling into. And the arguments to an application can also include the output from other applications. So I would think that the console application that most people are familiar with, at least these days, would be Git. Yeah, either Git or NPM. Or yeah, NPM. Yeah. Though I would probably say Git because you yeah, might have Git would be cross. Yeah. Yeah, across all the things. Um, you, I'm trying to think what else you would see. I mean, you know, any of your package managers are going to be in there. Build tools, those sort of things. Right. So, so the application name would be Git, and then the arguments you passed in would be like Git commit. Right. Um, and then what would be the dash dash all or dash a. Uh, dash yeah. dash I, uh, message or dash m right what would those be would those, be those, those would be switches so like the dash or like if you say get add dot yeah that would say hey add all the files you know that that's that's a switch it's a single character switch hmm. to go here's all of them hmm, that's true um, you, so get commit dash m yeah that's, and then the message yeah so that's that's a switch that has additional data with it okay um, if that if that makes sense yeah I'm I'm following you I'm just trying to get the right terms. Yeah, like I'm thinking the like you said npm, but I use git more than I use npm. Yeah, Um, like so, like dash g and npm would be a would be a simple switch, right? To say install this thing globally, right? But yeah, I wouldn't get too wound up on whether it's a switch or it's a parameter because those are kind of the same thing. Like a switch is like it's a boolean versus it's text. Yeah, I I I know. I'm just I'm trying to get it in my head, and I figure if I'm getting it in my head, the listeners are getting it in their heads. Yeah. Is that get with an E or an I? Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> um, now, the yes. the ability to take output from one application and, and basically chuck it into another application, you know, is another thing here. Um, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more, but that's just understand that that's something that can be done. Um, you can also stream data from a file into an application. And it, you know, it's important to, um, when you start looking at this, right, all the, all this content is text. If you, if you look at the way the switch, you know, the switches or the command line arguments are structured, they're structured to make it fairly easy to parse them with, you know, typical text processing tools. So they tend to have like a delimiter, um, you know, between the different switches and they tend to, you know, like an, if they have a additional data, you know, there'll be like a delimiter for the outer thing and then a different delimiter for, you know, the switch and the data. Gotcha. To, to split that string, if you yeah. if you think about it like that, this also means that they do some normalization on the strings before they go into the you know into the various apps and they get parsed, and that tends to result in you not being able to use certain characters mm-hmm. because they're used for whatever else, or you might have to escape them, you know, like a backslash, for instance, um, you know, those kind of deals. Now, as far as command line stuff, you're going to see things like. You know, you'll see, uh, you know, the, the executable name and then, you know, space, you know, some letter or you'll say space, you know, dash some letter or slash some letter. Mm-hmm. Uh, Linux apps tend to use a dash before arguments and Windows apps tend to use a slash before arguments, um, except when they don't. Like Git. Right. Because NPM. stuff gets ported one way and gets ported the other way yeah. or it was, you know, it, or it's ancient, or it was just somebody that said, "Yeah, I don't like that," and I'm it's my console app, and I'm writing it this way. So you can you can make it like a general rule that it's this way, but that don't ever count on that because it's just not going to ha- happen for you. It's it's not going to work. So I guess the next thing 
uh, to get into is what the shell is. The shell is a common execution environment for console applications. Um, that's the little black window in Windows or DOS. If you remember it. Yeah. It's, like, I think I remember <laughs> starting DOS. DOS 5, I think. I know I, me- I remember DOS six and six point two two, and I think I remember five. Of course, I also remember Business Basic for Xenix. <laughs> so that's all another. I re- I remember putting in the floppy, yeah, the the five inch floppy. Yep, and then getting on the command line to type in Oregon Trail to yep. play it. Yeah, that was back in, in the day, elementary school. Yeah, so that's that's what the shell is. What is PowerShell? That's Microsoft's newest evolution of basically, well, not not an evolution of batch and command, but it's it's their new way of doing shell scripting. How new? So for about PowerShell for a while. Yeah, it's it's new in comparison to batch. Gotcha. <laughs> okay. So it was during like W. Bush presidency, I think maybe okay. versus Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, either Reagan or H.W. Bush. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that's what that is. And essentially what the shell is, is that's the top level process that's orchestrating the other stuff that you're working with. Okay. Yeah, so it's, 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 it's effectively like, hey, I'm spinning up, I would almost say a container for these other processes, but now that's a loaded word too. <laughs> yeah, like, I wouldn't call it a container. It's a box that the thing lives in. And hopefully we won't ha- call anything a box in computing in the next year. So it's not a virtual box. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Maybe it is. <laughs> Don't yeah. be a rectangle. <laughs> I can't even explain that. He's he's making fun of me making fun of uh, someone tracing out uh, a GIF of Pulp Fiction. Or yeah. Mia does the the don't be a square. Yeah, she actually traces out a rectangle. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know, man. So next is pipes. Now, pipe is a method of interprocess communication. Essentially, what it does is that it takes data in, and data comes out of it in a first in, first out manner. Yeah, so it's Pipe like open. a queue, except we called it a pipe back then because we, I guess, couldn't spell Q. <laughs> you didn't have hipsters back then smoking pipes. Yeah, there is that too. No, I mean, that, it, it actually makes sense because, you know, if you, you know what I'm reminded of with this are, do you remember those pencils we used to have when we were in elementary school where it had, it was just like this cylindrical tube and then you had these little bitty plastic pieces with the lead on the end of them that you stacked down in there. Yeah. And then like you put one in the back and then the, the frontmost one pushed out. Yeah. I do vaguely remember that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's that kind of structure, you know, and this, uh, this obviously predates like <laughs> lots of stuff, um, you know, cause this goes all the way back to, you know, old Unix mm-hmm. systems, you know, where it's like, there is no GUI. It's you have a, you have a dumb terminal and you're talking to a box, you know, somewhere else over a wire. No, the great way to think about it is you and a bunch of friends are at the water park. The first one in the slide is the first one out the slide. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, you have a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Asynchronous water park slides are not fun. Yeah, that's that's not a bad way to think about it. But basically, what you do is it's it's a way to stream data in and out. So an app can can open a pipe to read, another app can open it to write, and what's written by the second app is read out by the first in that same order. 
and there's you know there's a couple different ways to do this now they do have it where you can um you can have kind of non-blocking io type stuff going on here too you know back mm-hmm. in the day they didn't and windows users don't typically see these but there is a thing called npfs which is the name pipe file system and there's a, you can actually get in there and see these things um this this as an aside this kind of stuff is why um, in a lot of the Windows programming environments, you couldn't have file names over 255 characters, even though you could in the actual UI, is because they had to do a bunch of very nasty API things to actually change this. It wasn't just like, oh, yeah, just make this this variable longer. It's like, no, there's other funky characters in here, and there's yeah. there's a lot of other stuff going on other than just the straight file system, and pipes are one of those things. Okay. I mean, there's also alternate streams and files and there's just weird stuff that goes on uh, that you 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 hopefully never have to know about. <laughs> like, I hope to never really understand that deeply because that means I'm in a real bad place. <laughs> you know, guys, and when Will doesn't want to understand something low level, you know, it's bad. Well, it's just like there's just a lot going on. Yeah. Um, you don't deal with this stuff in, in Windows very often, at least directly. You deal with the consequences of it. In Unix and Linux-type systems, um, it's a core feature that users ex- are expected to interact with. That's part of the whole deal is, yeah. is the command line interface. And I think probably the best way to think about pipes, honestly, is to think of them as being fairly similar to streams in whatever programming language you're used to using. But it's a stream that you can't seek on or you can't seek back. If that makes sense. So when you read no, off no. of it, you know, when something when, once you've read something off of it, like that's gone. You can't go back okay. in time. I follow you. All right. Um, but yeah, maybe that's a maybe that's a useful metaphor. That's probably the best way to just, to handle most of this stuff is to kind of talk more metaphorical. Hey, maybe this is why my mom likes Linux better than Windows. Maybe. It, uh, I don't know. It makes uh, there, there's I'm really not, a lot I'm, of stuff that like makes my sense. My mom but. doesn't know any about this, anything about this. I was just being silly. Okay, I was, I was, I was going to make some joke about it. Wouldn't pipes, you know? But. Honestly, at this point, it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> you know, like if she just said, "Yeah, to heck with Windows. I'm doing Linux," and you know, has is like constantly after you to finish moving her machine over to, to Linux. Have. Oh, you did? Yeah. At, was, at this point, like ago. At, at this point, I, I don't know. You know, she might know. <laughs> she like literally. A few months after me putting Linux on her machine, she goes, yeah, I never use Windows. This is this is just like what I had when I started nursing. I'd rather use this because I know it better. Okay, then. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, all right, Mom. Yeah. I have no problem with that. So, I guess the next thing we need to talk about is uh, kind of the way processes get nested. And so, you know, we have the term that's called a child process. Oh, it's such a cute process. Yeah. Um, and that's a process that's started by another process. Right. Unlike your own children, these processes don't survive their parents, <laughs> right? Like, you know, the parent process shuts down, the child process is done, unless you invoked it a different way and kicked it out on its own, if that makes sense. Uh, it's not, it's, it's almost like it's a hierarchy of containment. Okay. More than a hierarchy of progeny. So the child process is probably not the correct, like, we probably should have used a different word, but it was just a, you know, reasonable way to describe this. Yeah, well, it, this, it makes sense in like a tree type hierarchy. Yeah, so, but know, it doesn't is, make this is the parent. This is the child. Yeah, but it doesn't in well, like it's like a drill down thing. Yeah, yeah, but it's not you know from the uh, the the length of execution and all that. It's it's not quite the same. I think kind of like a using statement. Yeah, not completely. I mean, there, there's more to it than that, but that is a a good overview of it. Yeah, or it's or it's or think about it like it's a function that's called within another function's scope. Yeah, entirely, okay. or you know, it's, it's invoked within it. I mean, it lives outside of it, but you bring an instance in and, and do your thing. 
I guess. Okay, yeah. So you you create like a, a contained new... object, but it's yeah. this is procedural. All right, right. Um, you know, maybe that's a maybe that's a better way to think about it. And you know, the termination of a, a child process or the spawning of one um, can be done by the operating system's API or by way of its GUI. Um, especially, you know, like shutting it down. You do this with Windows Task Manager. You can expand certain processes and see what's under them. And since we haven't used the term GUI yet, GUI is graphical user interface. Right. And it can also be uh, stopped by termination sequence on the on the console. So this would be something like um, if you're running like command on, on Windows, you, know, mm-hmm. you can hit control C to stop it. Oh, yeah. I use that all the time with Hexo. Yeah. When I'm running a Hexo server or in Angular when I'm run, like running HTTP server to, to test what I've written. So Right. And that's just what that sequence does is the it essentially tells the parent process that, hey, the currently running child needs to stop. Gotcha. It's like control your children. <laughs> right. I like it. That's good. That's really good. It's a, control C, control your children. See, it's, it just translates perfectly. Mm-hmm. So the next one is standard streams. These are pre-connected input and output channels between a computer program and its execution environment. So when using the shell, these are typically, not always, connected to the text terminal. Generally, child processes inherit the standard stream of the parent process. Right. In general. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's one thing I hate about this is like, you know, yeah, it's, it's like this except when it's not like this. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's three of them that you'll basically hear about. Um, and the first one is standard in or standard input. And that's what's going into the program. This input may be sent from the keyboard or directed from a pipe, you know, g- you know give or take. It's also, um, you know, what goes in on the text terminal. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. It could be within the child process or the parent process in this case. Standard out or standard output is what comes out of the program. In other words, it writes to the terminal or writes out to a file, writes out to a pipe. Okay. Um, so, quick question. Why is two pipes an or? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that has nothing to do with it. I know. Yeah. <laughs> that, just like, like, that just hit me and I'm like, all right, I got to say it. <laughs> no, like that's, yeah, it's not the same kind of pipes. I think pipes on a keyboard. Um so, so anyway, you know, there's, there's standard in and standard out, but there's another output stream and that is standard error or standard error. Um, and that's a secondary output stream used to indicate errors. Now you may redirect it to the same output as standard out. You'll do this if you call a, com- a program on the command line and mm-hmm. do stuff, it'll, it'll stream out to standard out, but you could also redirect standard error somewhere else. So what you do is, is you, you execute a process and the stuff that passes goes out to one stream and the stuff that fails goes out to another, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. You, you could use this for, like, one thing I've been big on, I guess, at work and and learning is error logging. So I could see this for logging errors on the console. Yeah. That's cool. And you'll, you'll also see different stream notations in other systems. I think VMS had some other stuff. You know, it, it varies, especially as you get towards the older and older systems. You know, that's that's probably not worth getting into here because it's, it's kind of the same thing on most operating systems at this point. You know, it's the same concepts at least. Yeah. Um, the next thing you're going to run into is is exit codes. And what an exit code does is it indicates the result of a process. So, like, if you're, like, for instance, if you got a C-sharp app that's a, you know, a console app, when you run through, if it ran through successfully, you might return zero. Otherwise, you might return a numeric error code for what went wrong. So this goes back to the days when they didn't say, Hey, this is a, you know, this threw a file, not found exception. You know, for instance, it was, you know, it was a, you know, error 53 in visual basic. Yeah. <laughs> you know? 
It's either 53 or 51. It's in the 50s. That's mm-hmm. that's where, right around where the file errors actually lived. Um, and then you had to go look it up. Okay. Because it's back back when memory was really, really constrained. Like, that's what this comes from. I still have to look up error codes sometimes. Yeah. Usually it's because of the ORM wrapping the database error. And all I get is like yeah, the database error number. And I'm like, all right, let me go look this up. Oh, that's what it means. Yes. Or like Windows event log codes, those kind of yeah. things. Um, but this is a way for your your app to indicate to the caller whether it succeeded or failed. And this is at the process level. Okay. Um, versus the stream level. I, I've This makes some of the conversations I've had recently make more sense. Yeah. And like I said, this stuff is kind of dense. I mean, there's just, there's no way to make this like super duper pleasant, but it, I guess it kind of makes sense when you start thinking about how you would want to architect this stuff. Mm-hmm. Next thing we probably should talk about are your environment variables. The environment variables that <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying to think of the best way to put it. It's basically, it's, di- it's a dynamic variable that can affect the way a process runs. So you'll see stuff in windows like the system path. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a variable that's, you know, that's one of your system variables. Um, you'll see, um, the, you know, the app that we work on, or, you know, at least our, um, our Windows side apps, we actually have environment variables for, you know, where's this thing installed? Th- those kind of things, because they call each other. That, that way they can actually locate each other. It's not just information, though. It can, it can change that, too. Yeah. Okay. So these, this reminds me of uh, Control Deck in Magic. And I hate to bring that up, but I've been learning it from a friend at work and um, then had a conversation at, uh, our meetup this past weekend about it. And, you know, it's the neat thing about the game is it's a game for people that like to learn to game the game. Yeah. And they have decks that are built specifically for controlling the way gameplay is. Ah, yeah. And so that's what this makes me think of is this, these are variables that are there specifically for controlling the way functionality works yeah and it's also to make um data available across right. which i mean that's really all it is right it's just they re- how they react to the data yeah yeah exactly um, but yeah you'll you'll see this a lot in older programs and just it's just a way of um uh, of making things available in a programming language agnostic manner so like our our apps are delphi mm-hmm. apps for the most part but we have some um c-sharp apps that call the delphi apps Right. And so they have to look at environment variables to figure that out. That makes like sense. Where, okay. where this thing lives. Yeah. And so it's kind of a way to share state. Now you can do stuff with those, like you have, you know, system level environment variables, but you also have user level ones mm-hmm. that override okay. it. So you can do, you can do overriding, you can set them and then, and then flip it back. You know, you can do, you can do a lot of different stuff, you know, basically all the stuff you would do with data normally. Uh, so there, there's, there's a lot of utility there. Okay. Finally, we have the Portable Operating System Interface, or POSIX. That is a family of standards specified by the IEEE Computer Society for maintaining compatibility between operating systems. POSIX defines the Application Programming Interface, or API, along with command line shells and utility interfaces for software compatibility with variants of Linux and other operating systems. And this is all coming from Wikipedia. Yeah. And there's, okay, so here's the thing with POSIX compliance. There's a few that are really, really solid on their, you know, their compliance. And then there's a lot of them that are fairly decent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're, there's a few Unixes that are just really got it locked down. But, you know, Mac OS, BSD, Linux, they tend to be fairly compliant to the, you know, total POSIX standard. There's some... Well, I Some mean, things where they don't hit it, but it's Mac. Mac's going to do their own thing. 
Yeah, it's not so much that as it's like they decided they didn't want to do certain things because they just they either didn't want people touching that stuff or they didn't want them touching it that way because a lot of this stuff is old. Mm-hmm. And you know, we we've thought through things a little bit more and gone, yeah, we you know, it's it's not the same anymore. Um, you got to bear in mind these systems were built back when the trust level between machines was way higher. So, you know, you would have things like passwords and clear text. You know, it was basically, um, if you, you remember Lord of the Rings, like when they're sitting outside the mines of Moria, and he's like, what's the word in Elvish for friend? So, you know, because the, the past thing was, uh, you know, speak friend and enter. It's like, you know, the word friend and Elvish, they'll open the door for you. And that's basically it. Yeah. Like that was, that was the level of security that things were on for a very oh, yeah. long time. And so some of that stuff has been, you know, kind of kicked out because of that and just general interoperability principles more than anything else. Now, as far as POSIX compliance, Windows, uh, not so much. Um, They have some bits and pieces and they're getting there and there's ways to get fairly POSIX compliant setups going in there. Sigwin, for instance, will do that. And I think the the Windows subsystem or the Linux subsystem for Windows, Mm -hmm. and I think that's how they branded it now. Yeah. I think that may get us closer. It may even get it close enough, you know, that it doesn't matter. I wouldn't be surprised if Windows does doesn't eventually get this down because they want to do a lot of things that you kind of need this stuff for, like all the stuff with Docker and all the other things that are you know that are kind of getting to be big in tech. So um, it's probably coming to Windows. But basically, what th- what this lets you do is is you know in addition to you know how stuff gets passed around, this also specifies your utility programs and some things that are going to be available so that your app can shell out to other functionality instead of having to call it itself. So if it lives in that environment, it's 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 basically treating other executables that it knows are going to be there like they're an API. Um, so it's it's an API specification, but it's really old for an API specification, if that maybe makes a little bit more sense. I'm following you. So next we're going to talk about some common practices in building and running console or command line applications. First, Command line switches vary, but are designed to be capable of being parsed by text libraries. This typically means that switches are delimited in some fashion, usually by spaces. You'll typically have a switch that lets you find out what parameters are supported. It'll often be dash H or help or slash H help or slash question mark. Additionally, if someone enters incorrect parameters, it's generally best practice to tell them what is supported. Right. Because seen- that's, I mean, that's like, uh, again, going back to what these, what these interfaces were built for, this was back during the time when you got an operating system and it came with a manual. Now, I would say I've seen several console applications that I have used that will, even recently used, that if you type in something wrong... Rather than just throwing down a whole list of all the stuff, it, it gives you the error, and then it says, for help, use this. Yeah. Actually, I think it was Hexo that, that I've used most recently that did yes, that. Yes, I really like the way they do that, because then you don't get the whole big thing if you, you know, fat finger something. Yeah. Well, I mean, and think about an environment where you, there, you know, there is no internet. I mean, you know, and, oh, by the way, the previous sysadmin was a drunk who took the manual home with him, and we never got it back. Now what? <laughs> you know, you have a multi-hundred-thousand-dollar system, potentially, mm-hmm. and you can't use it if you don't do this. So that's that's kind of a practice that's that's moved forward. It makes things self-documenting. Right. And also, there may be 
both long and short forms of switches. The example that you have here is the slash H or slash help. Yeah. What what I think about is with NPM yeah, dash G, G or dash dash global. Yeah. If the app does a lot of different things, there may be a tree of possible commands. Yeah. So, and a good example is Rails. Yeah. Um, you know, the Rails command. Okay. So first of all, like I really like the Rails environment and I like a lot of the stuff that's in there, but holy moly, you've got to have a cheat sheet for this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you know, the Rails app can generate things for you. Right. So you might do, you know, Rails generate migration to generate a database migration, or you might do, you know, Rails serve, I think is what it is now for serving. I'm, I'm a little rusty, but you see how there's kind of, it's, you know, it's, here's the, here's the app, here's a verb, and then here's a subverb, and then. Yeah. And so both at both those levels can have their own switches too. Well, it's like get commit switches. Yes. Yeah, yeah it gets another one like that. Mm-hmm. And so these are basically, you know, give or take. It's it's almost like they're uh, you know, firing to subcommands. It's just like the main app is a controller. Yeah. But that, and if you actually get it, if you get into a, the way a lot of these things are architected, if you start poking around on GitHub, you'll actually see that kind of structure. Mm-hmm. Because that makes sense. It's a, it's an addressing structure. No, I mean, it 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 follows that that's where we get <laughs> get <laughs> yeah. that's where we get the the controller type structure we have now is from from that back then in more modern application. Yeah, and, and we've you know we've we've learned to apply you know chaining and hierarchical structures a little bit better probably. But yeah, you know, but that's that's kind of where this comes from. So if you think about you know nested controllers in a web app, mm-hmm. I don't know. Can you do that in? Yeah, I mean, I guess you could pretty much do that in anything, right? Where it's you know, but typically like you know, it'll be folders and then controllers under it. Like if you look at like old ASP.NET, I think in Core you can actually just do whatever you want. Yeah. Um. You, you want you want that kind of setup just because there's there's a lot of stuff you can do. Well, I mean, I'll be honest. I have at times been tempted to call another controller. From a controller, yeah, in um, uh, in a web API, you totally can though. You can, yes. It's, it's I don't know that it's necessarily um, best recommended practice. It's not. And so what I did was I pulled out what I wanted from the other one and I put it into a service that they both called. Yeah, and that seems like a more you know more easy way to do it. It's a more yeah. object oriented way of doing. Well, it. And you're not you're not t- you're not chaining those dependencies together either. Right. Like because if you wanted to test that that controller that's calling the other controller, now you've you know, you've got a dependency that you probably don't want. Exactly. So, I mean, it makes sense. Um, of course, all this stuff predates that dependency injection. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, cause like back then they were just like, yeah, here's a dependency. It's another executable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, we talked about, you know, change switches as being analogous to nested controllers. Um, but switches can also have their own arguments. So the delimiter within a switch tends to be different than the delimiter between switches. So you might have, you know, like you'll have a, you'll have a space between like the parameters of, of Git, right. for instance. But if you have one that has a value, you might have a different delimiter between the the actual switch and the value that's in there. I'm trying to remember if it's even that way in Git because I don't really. Well, no. When you when you pass when you do a commit, you pass a message. Yeah. It's dash m, and then you put the message in uh, quotation marks. Right. Yeah, because I think I it parses know. it a little differently too than than some of the others. Yeah. I don't know about other like that's passing a string literal in. Yeah. And so I don't know what what others would be trying to think because if you do thing like npm and git you can have multiple switches but they're like you said they're spaced 
Yeah. And I think that may be too with a, uh, you know, more modern mm-hmm. type setup because they're, they're like, yeah, we don't really want to express a hierarchy. I mean, it's like passing, you know, it's like in a web interface passing a JSON object as a query string parameter. Like that's really not, that's really not a new way to live. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like you could get away with it and you could totally parse it, but wow, why? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and this is this is pre JSON, so it's like, hey, this is a basically a wire protocol type. You know, it just mm-hmm. so yeah, you you may kind of see this uh, this sort of setup. Another thing that you'll see commonly is uh, switches indicating the uh, verbosity of output that you want for certain kinds of commands. Some of this is because of your know, really old systems. You know, it actually took time to display stuff to the console. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't instant and. Hey, if you have verbose output, you can spend a whole lot of time on it. Right. So they go, hey, just cut that crap out. Just give me the errors. This can also be helpful if you are streaming it to a file and you just want, you know, the critical logging output Mm -hmm. and not not verbose. Like when an app experiences an error, it's best practice to return an exit code indicating the failure. Yes. Um, And you'll see some pretty weird stuff with this. I think grep on Linux does some funky things with exit codes. It seems like I got burned by that at some point. Like I I remember writing a Python script that called grep, which I don't remember when that was. Wow. (laughs) You know, because like that's like two things I don't do much of. (laughs) Um, And I can't remember what what it was that got me. It seems like it was like a negative one when it should have been a zero or I was thinking Hmm. it would be a zero or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, So you do want to return an exit code that's meaningful. Right, that makes sense. Um, You know, just so people can kind of they have some degree of understanding what that handshake is. Mm-hmm. And also command line arguments may or may not be case sensitive based on the environment you're in. Yeah. Or the mood of the programmer that wrote the app. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hopefully they are consistent throughout the yeah. app. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. There's uh, I've seen some stuff, man. Like, yeah, just, uh, you know, I've even seen misspelled you know, command line parameters. I've seen that, yeah. Yeah, where you're like, I have to spell it like what? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's one of those ones where you, you type it in properly spelled and it comes back with an error. And so you go, oh, what, what is the actual command? And you do the slash help or dash help and it comes up and you're like, what? <laughs> yeah, and th- this is really bad with like homebrew programs that yeah. people have written for themselves. Oh yeah, <laughs> because the kind of, you know because the kind of people that that really really love their command line at this point, a lot of them maybe the whole spelling thing, you know, it doesn't so doesn't much. matter so much to them. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you you will see this. Another thing that happens is uh, a lot of command line apps have got switches to let you do a dry run. So if what you're does that mean? in other words, like let's say that you had a command line app that was going to move um, a whole bunch of files. I think uh, Robocopy does this. Okay. You can say, okay, I want to move all these files and you pass it, you know, you pass it the mask and like how it's going to move it and how it's going to recover. And, you know, all these, there's like this huge swarm of things you got to do on there. Right. Okay. But RoboCopy slow. Like, you know, like for instance, we back up the podcast episodes, you know, it takes, I've, well, it's not just RoboCopy, it's 7-Zip. Actually, mm-hmm. it gets us, but it's the same kind of principle because 7-Zip has this too, I think. Um, but you can pass a switch that says, hey, dump out and tell me what you would have done with these parameters, but don't actually do it. Okay. Because again, you have no way to test right, until right. you've blown something up. And you, you know, like if you're moving terabytes of data, you don't want to blow that you up. You don't want to have to come in here with another hard drive and plug it in and then run a backup and then try to do something. Yeah. 
Um, and so, it's, so it's built around that that kind of thing, and it's also useful for other programs that are you know testing stuff out because they can take that output and they can format it for you, even if it's a GUI app, uh-huh. and show you, hey, here's what's going to happen when when you actually run the thing that we're about to do. Here's here's what it's really going to do. Yeah, I can see that as told by the app, not told by the thing calling the app. Nice, I like that. That is really cool. And, you know, that's what that's why they do that. Um, oh, nice. Now you don't see that all the time, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and there's some places it just doesn't make sense. Right, right. That um, makes sense. Yeah, but it, it makes sense. That it doesn't make sense. Yeah, <laughs> totally, to- totally smell <laughs> what you're cooking there. <laughs> so finally, we've got just a few other things to note when writing or working with console or command line applications. First off, if you're building a GUI or graphical user interface application to run on a desktop or a server, your app still receives and can use command line parameters. Yeah. And we actually, um, you know, in our, in, in some of our web apps, we have stuff that's calling out to console, you know, for generating like PNGs and uh, PDFs and doing a lot of manipulations because, you know, bringing Delphi code into .NET can be kind of there's some funky things that happen that we haven't completely got worked out yet and like there's not a lot of docs so we we have to figure a lot of this out on our own and so it's like or we could use the shell and so that's what we do we take a little performance hit and we don't suffer right now also you can still use standard in standard out and standard error in a gui application in fact this is an excellent way to figure out what is going wrong in a lot of Linux programs when they hang up. Yeah. So like, I, you know, I've done this trick plenty of times. Like you, you run the app and it just, it hangs up, it crashes. You don't get any kind of actual error that you can see. Yeah. Open a terminal and call it from the terminal. Oh, neat. And the out- error output will be in the terminal when the thing blows up. Huh. Okay. So you can actually find out what's going on. Yeah. Hopefully. At Maybe. least, yeah, it's, <laughs> at least it's better, you know, it's better than nothing. Yeah. Now, another thing you can do in a lot of environments is you can do uh, command line auto-completion. Stuff and sometimes I think sometimes it ships with the executable and sometimes it's um, in some other kind of file that the command line or that the uh, terminal environment can use. Mm-hmm. This is a little bit more common on Linux, I th- although I think you can do this in PowerShell. Command line auto completion. I could see it in PowerShell. Uh, I mean, on the terminal, I just don't know. I think they have does. that in Bash, um, but you know, you know, I haven't ever configured that. Bash on Windows. Okay. Like real bash. <laughs> real bash, not yeah. the Windows version. <laughs> yeah. Not, not Which, by the way, you can get to, you can do bash on Windows. I know. I, I, look, I look forward to uh, to all the, uh, the the POSIX compliant viruses they're going to write for <laughs> Windows with that. Because you know that's coming. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, you know, the, the command line autocompletion is a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you may or may not want to do that. Another thing you'll see a lot of is if you've got something that's got a lot of available parameters or complex ones. Um, you may also see a setup where you offer an options file instead of the command line options. One thing that happens a lot of times too is when when an app starts out, it's it's fairly simple, and you've only got a few command line parameters, and it gets past a certain point, and somebody goes, "Hey, we need to like have an options file instead, or in addition to." And so you'll you'll see that pattern happen with a lot of uh, older, bigger apps. That's um, just you know something worth uh, you know kind of bringing in. Yeah, having a better grasp of what is going on under the hood with console applications may help you significantly in your day job, even if you're primarily a web developer. If you're using tools like Angular CLI, for instance, or Git, NPM, any of those, 
it can help you reason about what the tool is actually doing and make invoking it make a lot more sense to you. That pretty much wraps us up before we close everything out. Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, I guess it's pretty obvious what I'm going to say since I come out of stuff with the uh, episodes. The point I want to make here is it's very valuable to learn old tech, even if it's not something you think you're going to use. If it's still underlying the stuff that you're using, at some point it will become valuable to you. You'll, you know, in addition to the mistakes that have been fixed, you'll also sometimes see where the old tech was, you know, wrapped in the new stuff and things break at certain points that don't make sense until you understand what's underneath it. And so it's, it's really wise to go out there and actually try to figure out what, you know, what is the stuff built on that I'm using? So if you're, I regular, regularly deal with .NET. Underneath .NET, there is a lot of COM. You know, we call a lot of COM interfaces, a lot of those kind of things. And so you have to understand how COM works because .NET was built to kind of fix those problems, but also to be able to call down into it. And so if you understand how COM works, it will make your .NET programming a lot easier. Um, and if you understand things like DDE, that will make your COM programming a lot easier. <laughs> so what's interesting about this is I'm on the Change Advisory Board this quarter as the old tech guy. Yeah. And I don't have experience with some of the old tech. So the the old tech expert, and I call I call her that, but you know, the the mentor from the last quarter actually said she would mentor me this quarter for doing stuff like that. So I have a meeting with her scheduled later this week for learning some of that stuff to actually go in there and make changes into some of our old technologies. Now, by old technologies, I mean like classic ASP. So not that old, but Yeah. But I mean, you, you know, you think about it, there's still I mean, there's still stuff in Windows, for instance, or in Linux that's just ancient. Oh yeah. And you know, hasn't been changed because nobody's needed to and other stuff relies on it behaving very specifically. Yes. And so you, you really need to spend time to learn just kind of how that works. And that's why we wanted to go over the whole console app thing is because this underpins a lot of the stuff you're doing, even if you maybe don't think it does. So I guess that about wraps us up. That's all I got. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Look for us each week on Facebook Live before we record each episode. Thanks for listening. See you next time.